wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Good abend, meine zukunftigen Skeletor. It seems that it is Halloween once again, which of course means that I, the Halloween Kaiser, as contractually obligated, am here hosting this evening's show, once again, as well. Now, of course, you may have strong feelings about this, or you may have no feelings at all. In fact, it seems that most of you were entirely ambivalent to my presence at this time last year, to my charming, if not chilling, tales of morality, to my jaunty Halloween Kaiser dances and silly little Halloween Kaiser songs. And believe you me, there are things that I would rather be doing this evening. At this very moment, I could be digging into a big plate of schnitzel and gruselkorbis. I could be giving out treats and trinkets while enjoying a nice warm cider with a Halloween umbrella in it. I could be leading the children in a rousing game of Nine Knock Nicked. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> what you do is you get a bunch of children and you give them das grosse Freakelmesse. Then, then you get a sinner, someone who has done, you know, a Halloween sin. And you get the children to come around the sinner and then they all stab. And this person, they go, Nine! But the children, they go, Knock Nicked! And they stab again! Nine! Knock Nicked! Nine, knock, nicked, and it goes and goes and goes and goes. <sighs> I could be doing that, but instead I am here, and I think you should be grateful, because we could both be doing things that are worse, if you catch my drift. So why don't you sit back while I take out my spooky tablet? It's got a little sticker of a ghost on there. Do you see that? And I read you some horrible little snippets. And if we're lucky, by the end of this evening we may just have learned something. Or, at the very least, we may all still have our skin. <laughs> it showed up at the end of the street, two weeks before Halloween. Hmm, said Mom, looking out the front window as she drank her morning coffee. That's a big skeleton. Dad drifted to the window beside her. As a gesture, it was less about seeing what she was seeing, and more of an excuse to put a surreptitious hand on her backside. The kids, Clara and TJ, rolled their eyes. Oh, yeah, said Dad. I seen them selling them down at the Canadian Tire. They're this year's big item, don't you know? Like the novelty blob catch they did a few years back. You know, Jerry down at the church got one of them. The blow-up lawn ornaments, you know. It comes up to me the next day, he does. He says to me... Terry, I got me a blow-up doll. 
Just about spat my coffee out, so I did. Terry, said Mom, jabbing him in the ribs with a terry cloth elbow. Not around the kids. Now, normally at this point, Terry would have said something else, teasing and slightly crude. But just as he was about to, he saw, really saw, that skeleton for the first time. His eyes widened, and his jaw, normally somewhat slack, became somewhat slacker than usual. Jeez, Helen, he said. There really is a big skeleton, come to think of it. Wow, big sucker o'clock, ain't it? And indeed, it was a big skeleton. Even crouched as it was, its high, arching vertebrae crested to the height of the Saunders second-story ease troughs. Well, they aren't selling those at Nocadian Tire, I'll tell you that much for free, Terry said. Cause if they was, boy howdy, I'd have had to get one. You would not, said Helen. It's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life, and that includes that stupid blow-up doll of Jerry's. <laughs> you say that, Helen, said Terry, squeezing her butt a second time. But that's cause you only seen his blow-up cat ornament. Once you've seen Jerry's blow-up doll, then we can talk. Terry! The next two weeks went by in a flash for the grown-ups, but for the kids who wanted Halloween to come more than anything else, they just crawled past. Each day, TJ and Clara walked the tree-lined red-brick streets of their neighborhood toward the well-appointed Catholic school, St. Barabbas's, which stood just down and around the corner. And each day, their route led them past the, and excuse my language here, past the big-ass fucking skeleton in front of Mr. and Mrs. Saunders. Weird that they went all out for Halloween this year, said Clara. They're usually so stingy about everything. Don't even put out a pumpkin, barely even give you a box of raisins. Maybe they had a road to Damascus moment, said TJ. TJ had always taken the Catholic part of Catholic school a lot more seriously than Clara had. He was what the kids called a St. Paul stan. Only the kids at the Catholic school, though. Regular kids would never say that. A road to Damascus moment about Halloween? said Clara. I thought the reason they didn't like Halloween in the first place was because it was too pagan. So wouldn't that be the opposite of the road to Damascus? TJ sighed and shook his head. When it came to St. Paul, Clara, well, she just didn't get it, did she? Sure, Clara, he said. A road from Damascus moment, because that makes a whole lot of sense. They bickered the rest of the way home that day. Neither of them noticed that the lights were out, as they had been for weeks, in the windows of Mr. and Mrs. Saunders. Neither of them noticed that the mail was piling up on the leaf-strewn front porch. But after a few more grueling school days and after-school arguments about the authenticity of Paul's letters to the Ephesians, at last, at long, long last, the night of Halloween arrived. Darkness fell, and the streets bubbled up with glimmering jack-o'-lanterns and the shrill, excited cries of trick-or-treating kids. Clara, who was just on the brink of being too old to trick-or-treat, phoned it in by wearing a black dress and putting on a witch's hat. TJ, who had been torn between dressing as a mummy and dressing as St. Paul, ended up choosing column C and dressed as St. Peter. It was warm for Halloween that year, on account of the rapidly heating and potentially dying globe, but that wasn't a top priority for anyone in this neighborhood. The children went from door to door, admiring the high-budget decorations and getting full-sized candy bars in return. Even the Saunders had gotten into the spirit this year, leaving a bowl of full-sized Twixes out beside a rather gruesome and uncharacteristically anatomical porch display. 
Yes, indeed, they really had gone all out this year. And after the trick-or-treating was done, Clara and TJ lugged their heavy pillowcases home, ate too much candy on the couch while Terry and Helen watched an episode of CSI Las Vegas, coming soon on CBS, and then, full of sugar and William Peterson's exquisite performance as the inimitable Gil Grissom, they went to bed. But around midnight, Clara was awakened by a tapping at her window. Because she liked to be warm under the covers in a cold, cold room, she had left the curtains drawn, but the window ajar. A chill breeze siphoned between the curtains as she blinked awake. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. The tapping insistent, yet polite. She stood and drew the curtains outside. It was a full moon that night. Her room should have been flooded with its bluish glow. And yet, only darkness fell upon her pale and upturned face. Her jaw went slack, slack as her father's, and a sudden freezing bead of sweat began to claw its way down the back of her neck. For there, crouched outside the window, filled with darkness, moonlight rhymed, and vast and hard and breathing heavily through absent lungs, jagged and incomprehensible, and wafting with the scent of graves from the blackened tombstone hollows of its eyes and maw, was that big-ass skeleton from Mr. and Mrs. Saunders' lawn. Excuse my language. She froze, petrified. Hey, said the skeleton. For a moment she couldn't speak for terror and unthinking dread. Yes, she managed at last. The skeleton took a long, slow moment to answer, lifting one of its massive fingers to point at her before it did. I'll fucking kill you. Gravity restored, whispered the ship's voice, and the three astronauts felt the comforting arrival of weight under their feet and bones. <whistles> Looks like it was some party, huh? said Jackson. Indeed, the ship was still fully decked out for Halloween, as it must have been when the distress signal was sent out 39 days before. Streamers of orange pumpkins and black bats still swung slowly under the momentum of their now-returned weight. Candy corn clattered down to the corners of the hallway. A jack-o'-lantern, all furred with azure mold, landed softly across the edge of a console, not bursting, but disintegrating graciously. And the blood. Of course, those beads of blood which had been floating like tufts of dandelion fluff against an autumn sky, these also drifted from the air to splatter on the bulkheads like a gentle mist. What do you think happened here? Chandra murmured. Mm, maybe a micrometeor, said Miriam, checking ship diagnostics on her tablet. Hit someone on its way through? Maybe the decompression got the others before the ship could fix the breach. Hmm, said Chandra. Then where are the bodies? Someone must have made it, Miriam suggested. At least long enough to move them somewhere dignified. Jackson grunted. If someone did make it, I'll bet they'd be holed up in the lab, he said. Why, said Chandra, raising one of her delicately plucked brows. That dedicated to their research? Jackson shook his head. Sealed doors, he said. Then, with a ghoulish grin, he added. And plenty of meat.
Miriam shuddered. Thirty-nine days without a toilet or shower, sealed in a room full of dead animals. She could only imagine the smell. Well, Manifest says the lab's up this way, Chandra said, consulting the hollow on her wrist. Let's get it over with, said Jackson, setting off. His boots squicked in the blood. All three of the astronauts had been on salvage jobs like this before. It was always just bodies and cleanup. Lots of cleanup. The manifest told them the laboratory was one corridor over and one level up. It wasn't that large a ship. But as they stepped slowly down the avenues of white plastic, every inch of it seemed to be spangled with Halloween decorations, broken bottles, and crusted black blood. Fireball whiskey. Jackson said, nudging one of the bottles with his boot. He whistled once again. Some party. Just what kind of research were they doing here? Miriam asked. Probably something that's illegal planet side, said Chandra. I assume that would involve vivisection. Jackson supplied her with a word. She winced. Uh, ships registered to a company called... Oh. Chandra stopped short. They had arrived at the doors to the lab. Open, not sealed as they might have expected. And, more unexpected still, someone was crouched at the far end of that lab, staring out at the starred vastness of space, at the black sky. It was a child. A child, surely, dressed in a Halloween costume. A little superhero outfit complete with purple spandex, Hood and bright red cape. Aw, said Miriam. The word just slipped out. It was such an automatic response to the sight of a child in a costume, even weeks after Halloween, thousands of miles from Earth, and on a dead ship. Hey, little guy, said Jackson, stepping forward. Are you okay? Are, are your parents around? Can you tell us what happened? And then... The child turned to face them. Oh, said all three astronauts at once. Its eyes were small and black and wild with unbridled rage. Its white fangs shone like titanium spikes in the white fluorescent light. They shouldn't have let it out of its cage, you understand, or dressed it in a silly little costume for their party on the night of Halloween. They shouldn't have tried to feed it whiskey-flavored cinnamon. The costume's front was stained to black with the month-old blood of Halloween. Shit and stale urine had discolored the little tights. A baboon. A research monkey. Quite large, you understand. Oh, the astronauts said it once again. And then the monkey shrieked and came at them with everything it had. A little while later, silence had fallen on the corridors of the research vessel Norn 13 once again. The lone trick-or-treater roamed his empty streets, munching on a tasty fistful of morsels. It was still Halloween. As the clock struck midnight, and the witching hour descended upon this world, Bradley Caton Anderson erupted from his grave with a scream that could have frozen the rain trickling down on that All Hallows' Eve. 
For one hundred years he had waited, his spirit suspended halfway between heaven and hell, his eyes just barely open to the eternal rest beyond his reach. And now, for one night, he would visit this living plain to unleash his pain, his grief, and his fury. He flew high up into the night sky and surveyed the city. Much had changed while he had slept his restless sleep. Look at this place, he thought. The buildings scratch the sky. They stretch for miles on. So large and abundant. The people who live here must know nothing of hardship, of want. Oh, what joy I shall take in terrorizing them in their soft, warm, happy little lives. <laughs> but where first? Who first? It didn't take long to decide. One of those tall buildings was just a short glide away from the cemetery. Surely there'd be some rich fat cat up on one of the top stories. A no-good lout due for a good fright. Ah, yes, that would do nicely. But as he flew up to a window on the thirteenth floor of that building and peeked inside, he saw something he did not expect. The room he was looking into must have only been 400 square feet, maybe even 350. And yet, there was a bed on one side of it, and a stove and icebox on the other, a desk set up in one corner, and in the other a coat rack beside one of the only doors in sight, a pair of shoes sitting on the floor next to it. And sitting at a small table in the middle of this small room, Sitting at a table for two and sat for one was a man pulling his dinner out of a brown paper bag. He pulled one container out first, a tin tray with a paper lid marked chicken fried rice, then pulled out another nearly identical tray marked seafood fried rice. Jesus Christ, the spirit muttered. All of a sudden, Anderson felt... A deep and profound pity for the person he was looking at. It was a strange sensation he thought he would never feel again in death. No, not this one. It just wouldn't be right to haunt this one. So with that, he flew off to find a deserving victim. Or, what was this? Hmm, perhaps he would find deserving victims. Down below, seated on a park bench where a young man and woman engaged in idle chatter. Well, well, what have we here? Chuckled Anderson. A couple of little lovebirds wallowing in their bliss. Well, when I'm done, it'll be love at first fright. But as he flew down, as he tore open his chest to reveal six thousand eyes peering from a deep and endless void that consumes all mortal happiness, he stopped yet again. For he realized that... They weren't quite chattering. Not both of them, at least. Rather, it seemed that the young man was doing most, if not all, of the talking. Anderson floated closer to listen. So yeah, I went pretty all-in on Roncoin for a while. Good returns, but really volatile, you know. So now, I like to have an even split of Roncoins and Grillcoins. Though, <laughs> we call them Grillums over on Reddit. Anderson did not understand this new arcane tongue. But he did not like it. And neither, it seemed, did this young woman. She smiled and nodded, but truly hers was a face that said, 
jumping Jehoshaphat, this is my fourth first date this month and I'm going to die alone because that would be preferable to this. Anderson closed the horrible howling hole in his chest. Eh, nah, she was having a bad enough night. What would be the point in haunting her? Someone else, he thought, flying off. There, there must be someone more deserving of my time and terrorization. But as the night went on, try as he might, search as he might, he only found one helpless fawn, one innocent babe after another. He snuck up on one person, carelessly waltzing down the street, and was about to scream the scream of the damned in their ear, when all of a sudden there was a buzzing, and they pulled out a strange device from their pocket, and the device reminded them to drink water. Mercy God. Later, he crawled up to the window of a basement apartment, preparing to possess some furniture and do the whole poltergeist rigmarole. You know the one. But when he peered inside and scanned the room, it was he who was horrified. For there was a woman sitting on a couch, a cat sitting in her lap, and she was using one of those things. You know, those things that you can buy online and then you stick in your mouth and they're shaped like a tongue and they have kind of a brush texture and then you can groom your cat with your mouth. What the fuck? Anderson said. The fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Ugh. And so on and so on until the hours began to dwindle and the world went off to sleep. Bradley Kitten Anderson could feel his anchor to the mortal realm loosen and knew that it would soon be his time to go. A profound sadness filled him, not only because he had wasted his one night on Earth, but also because, man, this time sucked. But just as he was about to fade away, something made his cold and rat-gnawed ears prick up. A sharp and guttural, Fuck! sounded off into the night air, and not very far away either. Could this be my chance? he thought. Is there someone with a bit of fight in them? Is there still time? He flew to the sound, fast as he could. But, well, it was another final sad sight. Standing there was a man, his face downcast, his body completely still. And on the ground at his feet, a pizza box flipped upside down. Sauce and grease bleeding into the pavement. Anderson was speechless. He drifted toward the man, and with his last ounce of power, made himself visible for just a moment. Uh, hey, he said. The sullen man did not respond. Anderson reached into his pocket and pulled out a spectral ten-dollar bill. I think you need this more than I do and after placing it in the man's pocket and taking one final second to shake his head, he faded away. This world didn't need him. It had been haunted all along. The night before Halloween is always the worst. The all-day rush, aisles clogged with shopping carts, people shoving each other and snatching at the last trendy children's costumes. Massive boxes of chalky, disgusting candies spilling across the floor like dice. Fights break out, and we're expected to break them up like we're minimum wage referees. 
Any kids unlucky enough to be there are freaking out, terrified, as they're exposed to the grim reality of adult-sized tantrums. We're lucky if we sell as much stock as the customers destroy. And of course, since it's the last day before Halloween, we stay open extra late. Midnight, and with two hours of closing after that. Sure, I, I guess it makes sense. What good is a spirit Halloween superstore if it isn't open the one night you need it? <sighs> yep, the night before Halloween is the worst. And somehow, I always get stuck working the entire 16-hour shift. My teenage co-workers all beg out so they can hit up Halloween parties. Five years of day-before-Halloweens, and five different spirit Halloweens, all at different locations in the suburbs where the store popped up like a mushroom on the moldy carcass of a recently closed storefront. You aren't supposed to be working at a Halloween superstore for five years. <laughs> it's, a, it's a job meant for teenagers who need the money for booze and drugs they'll consume on Halloween. Well, I wasn't a teen, and I sure as hell wasn't an owner. So what was I doing there? And honestly, that's, that's, that's the one good thing about the day before Halloween, being too tired to ask myself that question. Besides, that's not what this story is about. The first time it happened, I'd been alone for about an hour, closing up. I had to force the last customer out the door, still ranting about how he was going to sue us for not having whatever Star Wars costume we wanted. I was so exhausted, the saliva he'd frothed onto my shoes couldn't even activate my gag reflex. Back at the counter, a pile of receipts greeted me, waiting to be sorted. Shit work, but it was also the last thing on my to-do list before locking the door and getting the fuck out. But I'd barely made a dent in the pile when I heard something. A scraping of shoes on filthy linoleum. And I realized I wasn't alone. He emerged from the darkness blanketing the back aisles of the store. A crumpled paper bag of a man. Mid-forties with gray stubble, milky eyes and clothes that made his shapeless body even less appealing. His gait brought to mind the listless sway of a dead pig swinging on a meat hook. Hell, he might have even looked worse than me. But for a man so defeated, one part of him still remained vigorous. His hand clutched a colorful, child-sized costume, holding it so tight against his chest I wondered how his fingernails hadn't punctured the plastic packaging. He came up to the counter barely looking at me, and gently placed the costume in front of me. We're closed, dude, I said. For my kid, he muttered in a wispy voice. Fine, whatever. I nodded, feeling my work-addled brain slosh back and forth. I rang it up. He spoke again. My kid, they need the costume, he said with a furrowed brow, like he was trying to remember. They need it for... <sighs> Halloween, I said, my voice rasping. Cash or debit or... Halloween, yeah, he replied. His voice seemed... so far away. All right. We stood for a few moments, both lost in the fog of our separate exhaustions. Right, so... Cash, or, or debit, or... But the guy had already picked up the costume and was heading for the door. Sir, I called after him, already resigned to letting him walk out the door if it came to it. Sir. But he didn't stop. 
He also didn't walk out the door. Right as he reached it, he suddenly just wasn't there anymore. I blinked. Still no guy. I wondered if I'd fallen into a, a micro-nap. Maybe a few minutes had passed. Felt like he just vanished. I passed it off as just one of those weird little things that happen when you overexhaust the human brain. And that explanation was satisfactory. For 12 months. Because the next year, it happened again. It was the night before Halloween. I was at the same spirit Halloween, but... Due to increased demand, this time we'd colonized an old dead department store in a neighboring suburb. Though, can you really call it the same store if it moves around? I'm not sure. Anyway, once again, I was closing up alone, doing receipts, barely able to keep my eyes open. And this guy trudges over. This time I'm so out of it I don't even see him until he's standing in front of me. When I look up, it takes me a second to realize he's even there, and not a hallucination or a mirror. For my kid, he muttered. And I suddenly recognized him. You, you came here last year, I said. But he soldiered on. My kid, they need the costume, he said. Yeah, yeah, for Halloween, I said. Listen, we're, we're closed, and the guy had already started as Gallows walked at the door. I reached out to grab him, and nothing. My hand passed straight through, leaving me clutching empty air as the guy kept walking, vanishing just before he reached the door. And each year since then, no matter where the spirit Halloween pops up, the guy will be there, always appearing in the night before Halloween, always clutching the same colorful costume. He says the same things to me each time, barely aware of my presence, before trying to leave. I've tried looking him up. I've tried sorting through old newspapers or online articles for suspicious deaths. It's hard to pin him to any one location. I guess that's what happens with pop-up stores. I wish I could see what costume he's holding. It might give me a clue, but he clutches it so tightly against his chest that all I could see are the colors. Every year I told myself I was going to figure it out. I told myself I'm going to help this person move on from whatever half-death they're living, to help him sort out his unfinished business. But it's the day before Halloween. The longest, busiest, worst day. The day that makes me wonder why I even get up in the morning. I don't have the energy even for myself, you know? This year I barely noticed him at all. I just didn't have it in me after the double shift. He came up to the cache, holding that colorful little costume, and we we just stared right past each other as he walked out the door. I just stood there for the longest time, not a thought in my head, until I went back to counting cash. And then I left. Went home to all the nothing in my rental unit, and slept until morning when my new retail job began. Five years. Five years. Five years, and I'm only now realizing that there were two ghosts there the entire time. Ah, well, there you have it. Did we all learn something this evening? Hmm? Well, do we, do we all still have our skin?
Oh, well. Well, at least my little ghost taker managed to stay on the whole time. You have to count your blessings, you know. I have been your most loyal and faithful Halloween Kaiser, and these have been nasty little Halloween snips for nasty little childs. Enjoy your tricks and necrine, and remember, Halloween isn't the only day you can die. Good night, meine Lieben. This week's episode, Nasty Little Halloween Snips for Nasty Little Childs, was performed by me, the Halloween Kaiser, and written by... I don't know, I just got some off the internet. The Run Station is made possible by the generous support of its listeners on Patreon. Thank you to Sid, Amy, Marty Solotki, Brandon Buchanan, and a very special thanks to Bradley Caton Anderson for helping them keep the lights... well... off. You can also support them by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Sexton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Zitron, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and email them at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next Halloween... Danke für's Herren.